This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. And over all the earth. Notice that phrase. And over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now in Psalm 8, this is a Psalm of David. I'll just start in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still or quiet the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now I want you to notice something in both of these, uh, in Genesis 126 and here again in Psalm 8 verse 5. There's a, there's a similar word that's used. Genesis 126, it says, and God said. That word God is the word Elohim. It's spoken of in relation to God in three parts, the Trinity. There's another word that's used for God in the Old Testament, and that's Jehovah. And the difference in the use of those words really has to do with the context. Elohim is most often used when it's talking about relationship, God's relationship with man. Jehovah is most often used when it's talking about a display of God's power or the works of his hands. This same word Elohim is used in Psalm 8 verse 5. I'll start again in verse 4. I want to reread this. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. That word angels is the word Elohim. It's not saying God made man lower than the angels. It's saying God made man lower than himself. But the Bible tells us, and, and Jesus was questioned about this. The, uh, the Jews, especially the Jews of Jesus' day, it's still the same way uh, to some degree, maybe not to as great a degree today, but the Jews are into angels. I mean, they are into angels. It's very much a part of their experience. They're very much a part of their doctrine, their beliefs. The Jews are really in the, into the angels. Well, a, a situation arose in Jesus' earthly ministry where Jesus questioned the Jews. And he said, how can man be lower than the angels when God said man will judge the angels? Well, that blew their, their doctrine, their theory all out of the water. But what I want you to see is God made man in his image. That means in his likeness. That means an exact or duplicate copy of himself. Now, we know that the purpose that uh, the Bible states that God made man was to have authority on the earth. And things changed when man fell in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve yielded to Satan's influence instead of God's instruction, everything changed. Man died spiritually. Man was separated from God. His nature changed. 
His nature changed. Now think about what that means. The Bible says that we can understand the things of God by looking at the creation. Well, that would have to be true for man's creation too then, wouldn't it? In other words, what I mean is that would have to be true. If it is true, then it would have to mean that God was, when God breathed his life, his spirit into man, man had God's DNA. DNA is considered to be the building blocks of who we are. As I understand it, only identical twins have, uh, are the only ones that don't have DNA unique to themselves are identical twins. And I'm not sure that's even complete. There may be differences there too. Now, DNA is created at fertilization or at conception, which is a real big support for the argument that life begins at conception. Well, when man fell, what did that mean to him? When man died spiritually, did his DNA change? I'm just posing the question. I don't know. I don't think there's any way we could know with certainty. But folks, that is the reason why the virgin birth is so critical to our relationship with God and our belief system. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then there's no way that he could have avoided or been separate from the law of sin and death that passed upon all men because of Adam's fall. Thank God he was born of a virgin. Thank God the incarnation is real. It's true. Now think about what that means. That means that Jesus had God's DNA. Just like Adam had to have had in the beginning. And that means that out of nothing, out of nothing, because of the word of God that was spoken concerning Jesus' birth and Mary carrying Jesus to be delivered into this world. That means that Jesus had God's genetic code. From nothing, there was a sperm that fertilized an egg in Mary and made life. From nothing. Well, when the Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. What does that mean? That means we become alive spiritually. That means our nature changed from death to life, just like Adam's nature changed from life to death at the fall. Man has to, if he's a new creation, if he's a child of God, man has to have God's DNA. Christians have to have God's DNA. Now, there are things that the, that the Bible talks about, particularly Paul. Paul had the training of the high priest, and what that means is, and, and this boggles my mind, but the high priest had to have memorized all of the law and the prophets. In essence, memorize the Old Testament. How does somebody do that? But Paul had that same training. He had completed that same course. He was on the, the fast track in the priesthood. He never could be high priest because he was of the tribe of Benjamin rather than the tribe of Levi, as was commanded 
at that time. Well, I guess it's always been that way. But Paul, having the uh, teaching, being the educated man that he was, having the understanding of both the Hebrew and the Greek languages that he did. And, and I want you to get this. Paul was highly, highly educated for his day. Part of the reason God chose him. He was just as comfortable operating in the Hebrew language as he was the Greek, which made him an ideal choice on another front. But Paul identifies everything that God did through Jesus, bringing him here to the earth to be our sacrifice. He identifies everything that God did through the Old Testament concept of grace. Now, he wrote in the New Testament, which means he wrote in Greek. But it's based on the concept of the Old Testament grace. Now, grace was not a big word in the Old Testament. It just wasn't. It's a huge word in the New Testament. But the Old Testament context, the Old Testament word picture, if you will, that the Hebrew word grace paints or portrays is simply the word simply means kindness or favor and the image is someone of higher estate stooping down to help someone of lower estate that's all grace meant in the old testament as i said it wasn't used a lot the first time it's used is where it says i think it's genesis chapter six and god and noah found grace in the sight of god but it's the word grace is used extensively in the New Testament in a variety of ways. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 says. It's telling us that everything God did for us, he did because of his grace. Not according to the law. Of course, the, the argument in Paul's day was the law versus grace. And so he uses, a lot, he uses the word a lot in that context. Thank God he did. But the Bible really indicates that everything God did for man, he did because of his grace. Everything he did for man, he did through Jesus. And as a result, there are hundreds of definitions that are given by ministers, commentators, expositors, and so forth about what grace means. Why is it so hard to define Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing school is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. Jesus said the kingdom of God is as a man speaking the word of God into his heart. You exercising your authority in the name of Jesus by whom you have access into the kingdom of heaven to say that for you, you are free from the influence of sickness and disease. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. The greatest, probably the most common uh, Definition, the one that's used more greatly than any of the others, is unmerited favor. 
My problem with that is nobody gets out of that phrase, that definition, favor. We get the unmerited part. So I really don't care much for that, that definition. I guess it works in some, some cases, some places. But the definition of grace that I like more than anything else or better than anything else is the finished work of Jesus. Because everything that Jesus finished and accomplished was, as the Scripture tells us, a because of grace. And it's through Jesus. That gets me to focus on what he did and who I am rather than the unmerited part. Granted, it wasn't merited. Granted, nobody has earned it and nobody deserved it. But who cares about who we were? I want to focus on who I am. Don't you? Well, back to, this, back to the word grace. Why is it so hard to define? Why is it so hard to, to explain? Why does it not fit in some little neat box? See, there are some places where the finished work of Jesus is not a good definition for the way the word grace is used in the New Testament. In some places, it's perfect. But in other places, it's not so good. So I'm not claiming to have, a, have some new revelation or have coined some new phrase that's uh, a one-size-fits-all type thing. It just doesn't. But here's one thing that I've noticed about the subject of grace, and that is everybody associates the grace of God with their own experience. Here's what I mean. Probably the, the most famous, most well-known teacher of grace in the church today has experienced God's delivering grace and so everything becomes about deliverance to the person who sinned and God has reached them and found them or they found him through some terrible affliction or bondage of the enemy and great sin in their lives and so forth then delivering grace is going to always be first and foremost for them always well, grace is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. It's talked about regarding deliverance. It's talked about as a part of the work of sanctification. It's talked about as a part of the work of strengthening or empowering you to overcome. It's talked about as a part of what you're called to do, the work that God has for you to do, or service. And it's also used in context with sharing. How can, the word, how can the word grace be used in all those contexts? Grace apparently, and I'm not talking about from the Greek language. I'm talking about from church doctrine, from New Testament revelation of God and who he is and who Jesus is for us. The word grace seems to be an all-encompassing word that's as big as God is and therefore impossible to put in a little box. Let me show you some of the things the Bible says about grace. Let's go first. To Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 7, it says, talking about in Christ. Well, let me back up. Let me start with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let me stop here long enough to make a comment. What does, I want you to consider this, what does the word grace mean when Paul adds it to his salutations or his highs? Hello, grace and peace be unto you. When we say hi, how are you? We're not expecting somebody to really tell us. We don't want somebody to really tell us. We want somebody to respond with fine, how are you? And so it doesn't mean anything. Saying hello doesn't mean anything to us. It did mean something to Paul. And he wanted it to mean something to the church. Ten times, in ten, in ten, ten different times in the letters that Paul wrote, he said, grace and peace be unto you. There were several other times in the letters that Paul wrote where he talks about the grace of God being to you, either opening or closing the letters that he wrote. If we don't have an understanding, at least a working knowledge of what grace means and what grace is, then this verse of Scripture is meaningless to us. Grace and peace be unto you in the name of Jesus our Lord. What's he saying to us? Well, we can easily remedy the peace part by saying, well, we know we have peace with God. God's made peace with us through Jesus. But what about grace? Paul goes on to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, folks, there is no way to identify when he says before the foundation of the world. There is no way to identify if he's talking about the Genesis creation or literally the recreation after the earth becomes without form and void. Or if it's talking about before he ever made the original earth that became without form and void. There's no way to tell. We don't know. But let's put it this way. At what point does God come up with a new plan? At the spur of the moment? Maybe another way to ask that is, was God surprised when the earth became without form and void? The Bible says in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 45, the Bible says God did not create it in vain. It's the same phrase, the same Hebrew phrase that's used in Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about the earth being without form and void. It could easily and, and accurately be translated, God did not create the world in vain, but darkness covered the face of the earth, and the earth was in vain, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Same phrase, same exact thing. The Bible's telling us God's not the one that plunged the world into chaos that caused it to be without form and void. God didn't do that. Well, was God surprised that that happened? How do you surprise God? He knows everything. He knows everything that was, he knows everything that is, and everything that it will ever be. God wasn't surprised. So we cannot conclude, just knowing the character and the nature of God, we cannot conclude in any way whatsoever that God's plan for man 
to be created in his image, in his likeness, a duplicate copy of himself, and to be given authority on the earth. There's no way we can come up with anything that satisfies our understanding of God as given by the word other than God planned that before he ever made the earth. Now, I'm not talking about the earth that Adam and Eve inhabited. I'm talking about the earth before whatever it was that became without form and void. The point is God's plan for you is as eternal as he is. There is no beginning. There is no end. It always was. Those types of things, those types of truths help me understand what it really means to be in Christ. Don't they, you? I mean, some people don't want to know this stuff. Some people don't want to think this stuff through. But I'm convinced that Paul had. I'm convinced that these are the things that Paul's trying to tell us. Again, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Before God ever made anything, he had you in mind. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us. That just means foreordained, preplanned. Having preplanned for us to come into the adoption of children by or through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom, in Christ, that you're accepted in, no matter how you feel, no matter what you think, you're accepted in him. In fact, God went through a lot of problems and a lot of earth, ages of the earth, a lot of difficulties, put up with a lot of disobedience, put up with a lot of things that he didn't have anything to do with, that the work, it was the work of the devil that the church has blamed him for so that you could be in him. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You're probably familiar with the story. I don't think it's a true one but one that's used for illustration, that there were four blind men that came upon a, an elephant. And they were asked to describe what an elephant's like. Well, the first one grabbed a hold of the tail and said an elephant's like a rope. The second one examined his leg and said, the elephant is like a tree. The third one felt the side of the elephant and said an elephant's like a wall. And finally, the last one took hold of the trunk and said, an elephant's like a water hose. Well, which of them are wrong? Each of them are right, but they don't have a total picture, do they? I think that's the way the, the subject of grace is in the church. That's why I said grace means to us mostly, primarily, what we've experienced it to be. Notice it talks about riches of his grace, the riches of the things bought and paid for us by Jesus. Notice Hebrews 4, 16. It says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
What's Paul telling us? It's telling us God's throne is is the throne of grace. And that it's available to strengthen you, to save you, to bring you into his plan for your life, to serve others, to sanctify you. It's available in every aspect, every facet. Grace can be seen and should be seen. There are times where Paul talked about being a minister, and he did this a lot. He talked about being a minister according to the grace of God that was given unto him. He talked in one place about Barnabas, Acts chapter 11. Well, the Bible talks about it. Paul didn't say it. But in Acts chapter 11, I believe it is, it tells us about Barnabas being sent from the church at Jerusalem uh, as far as Antioch to check on the spread of the gospel. And it says when they came to, when uh, Barnabas came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God on the church. Paul talked about his own experience of going to Jerusalem and presenting himself before James and Peter and John to share his gospel, to share the things that he was preaching. He said, lest I had run in vain. He let them judge it. They were the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He let them judge his message, his preaching. And the conclusion of that was, it says, and when they saw that the grace of God was given unto me to go to the Gentiles, just like the grace of God was upon Peter for the circumcision to go to the Jews, they sent us away willingly. Grace can be seen. Grace should be seen. But if we don't know what it is, how do we know what to look for? Look with me to another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll start in verse 1. It says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. Let me make a couple of comments about that. First of all, it has to mean that Paul's experience was when he was alone. Because if you were caught up into heaven here in the church service, we'd be able to tell whether your body went with you or not. But something that's even more important about this phrase is that Paul couldn't tell whether or not he had a body when he was caught up into heaven. We pay so much attention to our bodies. We pay so much attention to what what our bodies want, how our bodies want to operate, and so forth. But Paul said, all I know is I was in heaven. I have no idea whether I had a body or not. We might want to develop ourselves and commit ourselves to being a little less body conscious here on the earth. Because if going to heaven, if the experience of being in heaven means you can't tell whether or not you've got a body, then why do we give it so much influence over our lives now? The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. One translation says, That means a new species of being. God put his spirit inside of you and made you a new person. You're not the person you may see yourself to be. Learn to look at yourself through the lens of God's word and walk according to what he says about you. Thanks for watching today. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church.
This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Grace is costly. It is as sacred, holy, and precious as the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.